Our first speaker, Pete Henriquez, is certainly no stranger to the VHS. He's spoken here several times before, most recently last spring when his new book was published. Good. <laughs> you have a biographical sketch of Dr. Henriquez in your packet, so I won't take time from him by reciting his many accomplishments. But I do want to say that if he is an accurate example, emeritus history professors don't lead dull lives. Since retiring from George Mason University, he's published, spoken, and advised on his specialties more than ever before. Mount Vernon and the George Washington <laughs> Papers Projects have been special beneficiaries of his expertise. You know, uh, I'm sure that in every poll of historians and the general public, George Washington always ranks at or near the very top of the list of the most important presidents. Well, in retirement, Pete Enriquez has done so much on Washington that he ranks at or at, at, at or near the very top of the list of scholars working on the first president. He was known for a long time for his teaching and research at George Mason on the American Revolution and on the Founding Fathers. And I'm very pleased to say that over the years, our own Virginia Magazine of History and Biography published several of his articles. You may recall that when he was introduced here last spring, we quoted some comments about him uh, by Ron Chernow, a gifted writer and speaker himself. Here's what Ron Chernow says. Make space on the groaning shelf of Washington scholarship for a fine new volume. Peter Henriquez has illuminated the often elusive first president by tackling some of the thorniest issues in his life with such erudition, sound judgment, and penetrating insight that the reader comes to trust him as a valued guide on every page. Please welcome Pete Henriquez back to the VHS to speak to us on the subject Realistic Visionary, the Presidency of George Washington. Did you take my uh, talk? Did I? <laughs> it's a great way to start. I'm no David McCullough. I need, <laughs> I need my, uh... wasn't that a great talk last night? I, I told my wife, I said, I am so glad I don't have to go on right after he spoke uh, because he's just in a, he's in a league uh, all, all by himself. And when, when Nelson called me a while ago and said we're planning this special event at the Virginia Historical Society and they're inviting the likes of David McCullough and Michael Beschlosh and then they said we'd like you to be a prominent part uh, of the program as well. Well, I was so surprised I felt I imagined like some of those people who make the final rounds of American Idol or Dancing with the Stars, <laughs> you know, you got, you got to the final cut. Uh, and I was uh, very surprised and pleased and proud to be a part of such an important, uh, important event uh, as this. Next week, you know, there's going to be a lot of well-deserved hoopla in connection with the grand opening at Mount Vernon of their new museum and education uh, center. 
They have raised over $100 million in connection with this really ambitious project whose goal is to discover the real George Washington. So much more interesting, as we learned last night, and inspiring than the cold, aloof figure whom so many Americans find rather boring. And they once again to put Washington first in the hearts of his countrymen, where, sad to say, he still uh, does not, uh, he's not there. But we're working hard uh, to change that, and hopefully sessions like that, uh, like today, will do that. No matter how many times you've been to Mount Vernon, I can assure you the next time you go, uh, your experience will be greatly enhanced. Uh, this education center is really quite, uh, quite something with all sorts of high-tech movie. You go in to watch a movie theater of Washington crossing the Delaware, snow will fall on you uh, while you watch. So uh, uh, it's, uh, it's really, it, it really, it, it's quite something. They have three lifelike statues uh, reconstructing the way Washington looked at different ages, uh, at 19, at 45, and, and at 57. Uh, to whet your appetite uh, for, uh, for that, here's a, the way he looks, and uh, they were nice enough to let me sneak out uh, a slide since the exhibit's not yet, uh, not yet open. Uh, this is the way uh, he uh, will look uh, in your exhibit as you go into Washington and the American Revolution. What you think of that when you've got flesh on, it, on him instead of the regular bust, I, each of us can decide for ourselves. This is a little closer-up uh, picture of Washington's face based on the latest scientific, physical uh, anthropology uh, to do that. What I'd like to do this morning is to kind of continue the theme that David touched on last night, uh, the leadership of Washington by focusing on his uh, presidency and the decision to be president, how this reveals his leadership and how this reveals uh, his uh, character. And then at the end, we'll have a chance for uh, some, uh, some Q&A on it. Charles Thompson, the Secretary of Congress, arrived at Mount Vernon on April 14th 1789, to make official what George Washington already knew, that he had been unanimously elected the first president of the United States under the recently ratified uh, Constitution. The new Constitution, while leaving many questions unanswered, significantly created a brand new office, the President of the United States, which, while definitely hedged, as almost everything that the founders did was hedged, it was a surprisingly powerful office, especially in view of the fact uh, that the authors had a Whiggish distrust of power. Uh, power corrupts, personal power corrupts, uh, absolutely. The president under the Constitution would serve for an unlimited number of four-year terms, appoint and supervise the heads of department, be commander-in-chief of the army, have veto power, have the right to call Congress into special session, and to possess a surprisingly large amount uh, of uh, latitude to lead the government in terms of conducting foreign relations. Now, there was simply no question in the minds of the delegates at Philadelphia who would be the first president. 
And that is one of the major reasons why the presidency is as strong as it is. As one of them expressed it, entre nous, I do not believe they, meaning the powers of the president, would have been so great had not many of the members cast their eyes towards General Washington as president and shaped their ideas of power to be given a president by their opinions of his virtue. Interestingly and often overlooked, Washington does a great deal to shape the office of the presidency even before he is inaugurated uh, to that position. Now, by the time Charles Thompson arrives at Mount Vernon, Washington, this is no surprise uh, that he is picked. He knows he's already decided, he's already packed, and has a place to live in New York. Uh, He's ready uh, to go. But believe me, it was an agonizing decision on Washington's part, and I think it reveals much about conflicting aspects of Washington's interesting personality. He was genuinely reluctant to accept the office. Now, his hesitation did not come about because of a lack of ambition or a desire for fame. The flesh and blood George Washington was profoundly ambitious and eager for fame, although I would argue he was not ruthlessly or unethically ambitious, but rather cleverly and uh, determinedly so. A significant part of Washington's personality liked to be at the center of power and influence. Even when he retired as commander-in-chief and went back to Mount Vernon, uh, he still eagerly slipped into the prompter's box, sending letters about what needed to be done to strengthen and salvage the Union of the United States that he had done so much uh, to bring into being. Nevertheless, The hesitation was genuine, and I think he was much more reluctant to become president in 1789 than he was to accept the commander-in-chief in uh, in 1775. The task, of course, facing the new president was daunting in the extreme. Washington had no desire to face what he called the 10,000 embarrassments, perplexities, and troubles which I again must be exposed to in the evening of a life already consumed by public cares. Additionally, Washington had solemnly pledged at the end of the war to permanently retire, and his age was advancing. He didn't want to leave his much-loved Mount Vernon yet again. I mentioned that part of Washington's personality desires power. Another very strong part of his personality desired the autonomy that comes with being the squire of Mount Vernon. And furthermore, his reputation was secure. No American could ever hope to be as much loved and idealized uh, as Washington was in the aftermath of his victory over the British. Thus, from his perspective, his standing could only be damaged uh, by a new position. And finally, and this is what makes Washington such an interesting person to study, he was afraid that he would not be able to perform the job satisfactorily. The desire for fame and the fear of failure always sat uneasily with Washington 
throughout his entire life. He was an impenetrable mixture of ambition and diffidence, of confidence and self-doubt. When you read his letters of the time, they have a rather plaintive quality to them. I don't want the position. Please don't choose me. As he put it in one quote, the great searcher of human hearts knows there is no wish in mine beyond that of living and dying an honest man on my own farm. In the final analysis, there was no choice for Washington. Words from Shakespeare's Henry Henry IV seem applicable, and Washington clearly read Shakespeare, owned volumes, how extensively it's hard to tell, but Washington was better read than people give him uh, credit for. And the quote is, Necessity so bowed the state that I and greatness were compelled uh, to kiss. Because other Americans did not share Washington's doubts. It seemed clear to him that he was the only man with the requisite skills and support to do the job. And Washington is bombarded with letters, uh, wonderful letters, which if I had time to read and are in my book, uh, from Governor Morris, uh, urging him why he needs to take, that no one else uh, can take these 13 disparate colonies and they will listen uh, to him in a way that they will listen to no one else. The cumulative effect of such pleas was effective. Ultimately, Washington feared, as he wrote one friend, that my refusal might induce a belief that I preferred the conservation of my own reputation and private ease to the good of the country. And he didn't want people to reach that conclusion. Always a telling point for Washington. The best way to convince him to do something he didn't want to do is to appeal to his sense of duty. Uh, David mentioned uh, Joseph Addison's Cato. Uh, One of uh, Cato's quotes, your life is not your own when Rome demands it. Washington's life was not his own uh, when his country uh, demands it. In the final analysis, it was a sacrifice of inclination to the opinion of duty. As he wrote in his diary, and he was rarely introspective in his diary at all, said, I head off for New York City, quoting, with a mind oppressed, with more anxious and painful sessions, Uh, sensations than I have words to express. He comes pretty close in a letter to his good friend, Henry Knox. My movements to the chair of government will be accompanied by feelings not unlike those of a culprit who is going to the place of his execution. Uh, How's that for looking forward to an inaugural ball uh, party? And by the way, uh, this is a second Uh, you'll see at Mount Vernon these are, that's Washington uh, being inaugurated, that's uh, at the age of uh, 57, those are lifelike figures in the front against a background uh, painting, it's a pretty impressive thing uh, to to see, there's the uh, there's a close up, it's a little blurred it gives you an idea of how he looked uh, as he becomes uh, as he becomes uh, president if Washington's feelings were like those of a man going to his execution. His actual journey from Mount Vernon to New York was one long triumphal march with rituals strikingly similar 
to those employed to welcome English monarchs on their royal progresses and their entries into London for their coronation. It's really impossible for me to convey to you just how universally beloved Washington was at this particular time uh, in, uh, in his life. There's no comparable figure uh, in, uh, in, our, in our history. Uh, as one person put it, and I could bore you with the rest of the, the talk with just quotes along this line, to behold the man whom heaven has been blessed to make the instrument of our political salvation seem to be the last and fondest wish of every man, woman, and child. As one person wrote a friend, I can die content. I've seen Washington. Uh, and that is kind of uh, the feeling. Now, if no president entered office with more personal prestige and affection than Washington, only Lincoln and Roosevelt faced comparable crises. At first glance, the crisis facing Washington might not seem as extreme. As Joe Ellis notes, Washington's achievement must be recovered before it can be appreciated, which means we have to recognize that there was no such thing as a viable American nation when he took office as president. Now, of course, it's impossible in a talk like this to look with any detail at the specific events of Washington's presidency. Rather than doing so, what I'd like to do is pick what I think is a good overarching theme uh, and use that uh, to illustrate Washington's uh, leadership and, and approach. And basically, if you want one theme for Washington as president, it is to secure the union. That defines his presidency. That is the overarching focus, uh, indeed, throughout most of his uh, adult life. He approaches the task as president with a mindset of a strong nation builder. We sometimes forget, even though he's from Virginia, that home of strong states' rights, uh, that Washington was first and foremost a supreme nationalist. As Don Higginbotham uh, put it, uh, Washington, more than any other member of the revolutionary generation, both by word and deed, advanced the concept of an American nation and pressed for the creation of an institutional umbrella to bind America together. He suggests, and I think it's a good idea, that Washington should be known by the nickname the Unifier, uh, for that's what he sought uh, to be. In order to achieve his overreaching goal of a strong union, yes, you have to strengthen the central government, but other specific goals had to be achieved as well. The grave problem of the national debt and sufficient funding must be solved. Commerce must be encouraged. The western frontier must be secured from both Native Americans and foreign influence. Peace must be maintained with European powers. Partisanship and sectionalism must be minimized even if they could not be eliminated. It was a tall order indeed. And there's no question that the central problem that keeps coming up with Washington is the dilemma of how to strengthen the uh, national government's power. You have to remember that in the revolutionary de de decade, uh, the government had been built from the bottom up with local bodies stingily endowing to the higher branches of government 
with certain necessary powers. Uh, but the structure was fragile, uh, and ultimately uh, it was really a bundle of concessions subject to withdrawal at any time. From Washington's experience as commander-in-chief of the American Revolution, he had come to believe that a strong national government was absolutely essential to preserving an effective and genuine union. Equally important in Washington's view, and this might seem somewhat paradoxical at first, Washington believed that a strong government was in fact necessary to preserve the rights and liberties of both the states and the individuals comprising it. Excessive parochialism and individualism would ultimately lead to the loss of the rights that they were meant to protect. But Washington has to contend with the fact that at the very core of the American philosophy was a deep distrust and fear of a consolidated central government. Patrick Henry and many other great Virginians regarded any projection of executive power as a betrayal of the spirit of 76, a theme which still resonates over 200 years later. In my judgment, it's difficult to imagine anyone else who would have the wellspring of trust and public confidence to establish a stable and an effective system of government and to convince most Americans that an energetic government was not necessarily incompatible with liberty as long as the government was under the clear control of the people. Few men, as Edmund Morgan has shown and as McCullough mentioned and referred to last night, have understood power and effective leadership better than George Washington. The word Morgan uses, genius, is, I think, an appropriate. Uh, Washington was a better politician than he was a, a general. And throughout his career, uh, Washington understood the influence of using his public persona. Only Benjamin Franklin can challenge him in that way to achieve goals that he wants. You know, he was blessed by a wonderful physique. I mean, he's a superb, graceful athlete uh, with a tremendously commanding uh, uh, a presence. He loved the theater, as we learned uh, last night. I, I like the uh, quote from Alexander uh, Pope, act well your part, uh, therein the honor lies. Washington time and again refers to himself as a figure on the stage. He wants to play uh, his uh, part well. And there's a charisma about this man that enables him uh, to win affection and move people in the direction he wants that is truly rare uh, among individuals. One person wrote, I've been introduced to the King of England and the King of France and other high dignitaries. I never felt the presence of a man the way I did uh, with George Washington. And he is aware of this ceremonial role. He sits for all sorts of portraits, sends out all sorts of messages and proclamations uh, to religious groups and government uh, groups, all intended to increase his visibility uh, because he wants to use the affection for him to strengthen the union. He travels to every single state in the union, uh, not on a trip of vanity, but in order to use the affection for him as the symbol. You know, the, the country is, the idea of the country is vague to most people. Washington as president is the one tangible uh, symbol. In other words, he's the initial core of gravity that held the Union together 
through its first critical uh, challenges. This alone, I think, is enough to make him the young republic's greatest asset and only glue. How successful the experiment begins was crucial to Washington. He referred to the fact where travel on untrodden ground, uh, many things which appear of little importance of themselves at the beginning may have great and durable consequences for having been established at the commencement of the new general uh, government. Washington knew that his own actions would be carefully scrutinized. As he wrote to a friend, my political conduct must be exceedingly circumspect and proof against just criticism, for the eyes of Argus are upon me and no slip will pass unnoticed. For those of us not completely up to date on Greek mythology, uh, Argus is the 100-eyed guardian of the gods uh, in Greek mythology that keeps uh, focusing on, uh, on what's going on. That's why you spend a lot of time on seemingly trivial matters. How should the president be called? At the, uh, you know, John Adams said, how about his exalted high mightiness? That sounds good. Uh, <laughs> Maybe he was hoping down the road he'd get a chance uh, for people to... Unfortunately, they ended up calling him his rotundity instead. So he was, dis he was disappointed. You know, your, your wishes don't always come true. They're, they're, they've got, they asked uh, some famous cartoonists to do cartoons for Washington as, as president uh, at the Education Center. You'll see five or six uh, famous cartoonists picking, picking a topic and then writing on One of them was on this issue... Uh, and they've got this hippie-looking guy in a cartoon saying, hey, dude, leader. Uh, no, that's a little too informal uh, for, uh, for Washington. And obviously, Washington does need a, and, and he moves towards a formality. Americans need and want a certain amount of grandeur with their president. They want the man in the carriage uh, with the horses and the pomp and the splendor. But you don't want to be a king. And Washington, it's a hard line to follow. Uh, he had the pomp, but every day he'd take a walk around the streets of New York. Why? As an example that I'm no king, uh, that I move around with ordinary, uh, with ordinary citizens. Now, Washington is really successful as president, not because he looks the part, although, let's face it, that helps a lot. Uh, but it is because, as Richard Norton Smith put it, he is awash with talents. Uh, in my judgment, he's been portrayed much too much as a figurehead, as a passive political leader, when he was, in fact, the central politician of his age. In reality, he's not an icon, but an energetic and shrewd activist. He knows what he wants to do. And one of his greatest talents, again, going back uh, to David's comment, went how he could pick out the Henry Knoxes and the Nathaniel Greens. Now he could pick out the Alexander Hamiltons and Thomas Jefferson. He is a tremendously astute judge of character uh, and, and ability. Frankly, that's one reason why when Benedict Arnold committed treason, Washington said, who, he had such confidence in Arnold. It was one of the few times you couldn't believe that a man he had had such faith in would do uh, what, Arnold, what Arnold did. He seeks the best and the brightest. He's... He often wrote, he's, and this is interesting, Washington is not the smartest man in the room. 
If you look at the famous founding fathers, there's six of them and three of them, isn't it great, are Virginians? Washington, Jefferson, and Madison. I mean, we match the rest of the country with Franklin, Hamilton, and Adams. It's still a tie, and I think we win because we got Washington on our side. Uh, and, you know, in order, to, uh, in order to do this, he looks for minds, as he says, far abler than mine. I mean, he had come out sixth place on a Stanford Binet IQ test with those people. But there's a difference between brilliance and wisdom. And Washington is a wise man. Uh, and he has the expert, he, his strength is he can utilize the expertise of others to achieve the goals uh, that, he, uh, that he seeks. He's a wonderful administrator. I mean, we think of the excitement of, of the Revolutionary War and crossing the Battle of Trenton and so on in Monmouth. Over 90% of his time is spent in administrative detail. Managing Mount Vernon, his extensive land holdings, uh, hundreds of slaves, honed these skills. And remember, Washington becomes president. He makes no bargain. He owes nobody anything in order uh, to become president. Uh, No special interest uh, to uh, mollify. John Adams, uh, who was an occasional critic of Washington, Uh, made the interesting comment. He said, no man, I believe, has influence with the president. He seeks information from quarters and judges more independently than any man uh, I ever knew. Washington's sensitivities to the job. There's one little letter I'd like to to put up. He writes a female admirer, uh, Catherine Macaulay Graham in, in Great Britain, and makes this interesting comment. The establishment of our new government seemed to be the last great experiment for promoting human happiness by reasonable compact in civil society. Then he says, much was to be done by prudence, much by conciliation, and much by firmness. You have to do a multiple approach. Few who are not philosophical spectators can realize the difficult uh, part which a man in my situation had to act. I think this letter shows just how aware Washington was of these things. You have to weigh when to use prudence, conciliation, and firmness. Uh, He followed Aristotle's credo for working politicians. The best is often unattainable, and therefore the true statesman ought to be acquainted not only with what is best in the abstract, but what is best considering the circumstances. For example, uh, on slavery. Washington, although increasingly critical uh, of slavery, uh, was glad that the Quaker petition attacking it was defeated and did not want the issue brought up. Uh, To quote Ellis, what strikes us as a poignant failure of moral leadership appeared to George Washington as a prudent exercise in political judgment. There's no evidence that he struggled over the decision. Whatever his personal views on slavery may have been. His highest public priority was the creation of a unified American nation. And he will make that uh, his touchstone for deciding what he's going uh, to do. Washington's not afraid to delegate authority, especially in areas where he's not comfortable, like in economics. Uh, He gives Hamilton virtually carte blanche. And Hamilton's bold and brilliant plan solves the immediate crisis but only at a grave price, because in the eyes of a great many people, led by two of the, the other, 
two great Virginians, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, it, basically Hamilton's plan is for the few at the expense uh, of the many. The, in effect, the money changers have taken over the temple uh, and undermined the promise of the American Revolution. Furthermore, in the eyes of his critics, Hamilton's plan would lead to a consolidated government that would destroy the rights of the states and destroy the individual liberties of the people, and they organized to stop Hamilton uh, and his uh, supporters from being successful. Now, Washington never accepts, and this is one thing because he's a creature of his time like we all are, he never accepts the idea of the loyal opposition. He viewed the development of political parties as a dangerous threat to his vision of a united America. He couldn't understand the value of a two-party system as really the best way to organize safely and creatively the great conflicts inevitable in a healthy, dynamic uh, democracy. And thus, while he succeeds in developing national unity, he's much less successful on his issue of promoting political unity. Indeed, on many occasions, his decisions perhaps inevitably led to increased partisanship. Another threat to the Union developed out of opposition to Hamilton's plan for excise taxes on whiskey. That's a sensitive issue. Uh, you know, what Hamilton said, if they don't like the plan, have them less, drink less whiskey. As one Georgia congressman said, my constituents have been in the habit of drinking whiskey, and they will continue uh, to be in the habit of drinking, and we're not going to let a government uh, uh, poke around and, and do this. Well, it leads to the so-called Whiskey Rebellion in western Pennsylvania, which Washington saw, whether correctly or not, uh, as a threat to the fabric of, of the Union. Uh, as he put it, if the laws are so trampled upon with impunity and a minority is to dictate to the majority, there is an end put at one stroke to Republican government, and nothing but anarchy and confusion is to be expected uh, there, uh, thereafter. He actually led, for a part of the time, he led the militia troops out in the West, the only sitting president to actually take active command of military forces in the history, uh, in the history of our country. The most serious threat to Washington's vision of national unity originates overseas, as is often the case in the early years, as it certainly is in our own time. And it starts with the outbreak of the French Revolution. Washington finds himself confronted with perhaps the greatest test of his statesmanship, dealing simultaneously with the grave foreign policies crises associated with the general war in Europe and the domestic crises brought about by the conjunction of that war with divergent American attitudes towards the French Revolution and what followed. Now, we can't go into this in any depth, but I do want to make a few comments about it because I think, it, it, one, it has some resonance to our own crises, and secondly, because it reveals Washington's mature leadership better than anything else. Initially, Washington, like most Americans, was happy with the French Revolution. You know, liberty, fraternity, equality, sounds great to us. I mean, that's our kind of thing. Lafayette the man who Washington loved like the son he never had, uh, as I was glad no one did stand up with the Washington, uh, with the Washington thing, uh, that, uh, that the, uh, he, he wants to be, Lafayette really wants to be the French George Washington. 
Unfortunately, Lafayette doesn't have Washington skills, and the French crisis is more complicated than the Americans even, uh, so it doesn't work out uh, well. And the French Revolution soon lurches in a direction that frightens uh, Washington. Uh, as a reign of terror moves in, as citizens are rounded up without trial. It's interesting that Washington is concerned about the ultimate threat to civil liberties in terms of what it can do uh, to, the, uh, to the ultimate freedom uh, of a people. Uh, as he put it, if there were good grounds to suspect the prescribed and banished characters were engaged in a conspiracy against the constitution of the people's choice, to seize them even in an irregular manner might be justified on the grounds of expediency or self-preservation. But after they were secured and amenable to the laws, to condemn them without a hearing and consign them to a punishment more rigorous perhaps than death is the summit of despotism. Interesting quote. By 1793, France and England were at full-scale war. And a war of such magnitude inevitably dramatically impacted on the young and relatively weak United States. We have to remember, we're the weak guy at this time in the story, not the, not the most powerful nation. Washington issued a neutrality proclamation itself, a precedent-setting uh, measure that some people said he did not have uh, the, right, uh, the right to do. Most Americans wanted our new, they wanted neutrality, but they wanted to slant it in the favor of France. Uh, and Edmund Genet, the French ambassador who comes, tries to whip up enthusiasm. Uh, he gives, and he's pretty rough on Washington from time to time, but his position is the cause of liberty is the cause of mankind, and neutrality is desertion. Washington, a rock-ribbed realist, would disagree with that quote and greatly feared that excessive enthusiasm for the French could lead America to take steps that would put us on a collision course with Great Britain. Indeed, there's a growing move in Congress, led by the Republicans, to pass legislation imposing commercial restrictions on Great Britain to force them to respect our neutral rights. And in fairness, Great Britain is violating our neutral rights. They're seizing not only our ships, but sometimes are seamen. They're retaining armed forts in the territory of the United States. They're aiding actively uh, the Western Indians. Uh, and frankly, uh, whatever today's views are, then Indians were the terrorists of that day in the eyes of most Americans, and to aid them would bring forth that same kind of gut reaction. But Washington feared that contemplated legislative action against Great Britain might ultimately drag the country into war. And his efforts to defuse the situation set the stage uh, for the gravest crisis of his presidency and for what becomes his most beleaguered and finest hour. He sends John Jay as a special envoy to take the issue out of the hands of, of Congress. In so doing, he seizes the initiative and assumes responsibility for resolving the crisis establishing a key precedent that defined the president as the unrivaled leader of American foreign policy. Now, Washington, in sending, in sending Jay, uh, is con follows a view he wrote about, not in, only in the farewell address that Alexander Hamilton helped write, early in the Revolutionary War in his own handwriting, he had write uh, about 
the approach towards treating other nations where he said, no nation is to be trusted farther than it is bound by its interest. And no prudent statesman or politician will venture uh, to depart from it. Now, Jay does get a treaty. Washington's disappointed with it. It has very few benefits uh, from his perspective. It basically accepts the British interpretation of American neutral rights and grants them favored nation status, which means you can't pass any commercial legislation against them. Uh, To Jefferson and Madison, Jay's treaty is basically a sellout of the American interest. It put America back, basically back into a colonial position and all but negated our independence. Really, it belongs, as Jefferson implied, more in the annals of treason than in the annals of diplomacy. And when the treaty was made public, uh, there was a tremendous outcry of anger uh, against the poor John Jay. Uh, he, could, he said he could travel the eastern coast uh, by... Uh, by the light of his burning effigy. And one major newspaper, the masthead on the newspaper was, damn John Jay. Damn everyone who won't damn John Jay. Damn everyone who won't stay up all night with lights in their window, damning John Jay. Uh, So you get the feeling he's not the world's most popular guy. Uh, Washington wrote to Hamilton, uh, who, by the way, was stoned trying to defend the treaty. Uh, uh, That's the wrong quote. Uh, I guess I didn't put it in there. Um, He wrote to Hamilton, uh, at present the cry against the treaty is like the cry against a mad dog, and everyone in a manner seems engaged in running it down. Now, despite his hesitation, after much thought, Washington decides to sign the treaty, which had been passed by exactly the necessary two-thirds. And the reason was really simple. Despite its shortcomings, it avoided war with Great Britain. It would help our trade. It would give the young nation time to grow and mature. Uh, It would otherwise, war, in Washington's view, would snuff out what he calls the glorious cause of liberty. We're not ready for it. And then this wonderful quote, Sure I am if this country's preserved in tranquility for 20 years longer. It may bid defiance in a just cause to any power whatsoever. Such in that time will be its population and its uh, res- uh, resources. Uh, but it not yet. He really follows, to use a dirty word after Chamberlain's actions at Munich, in this sense he appeases Great Britain. Appeasement is often a very poor policy. It's not always a poor policy. Uh, in this case, Washington needs to buy time for, uh, for the young nation. And he gets severe criticisms as a result of it. Indeed, he goes so far to say, uh, the newspapers really rake him over the coals for this, the, the opposition press. You think the Washington Post might be biased. Read 1790s uh, papers. It's just unbelievable, the uh, friction on both, uh, on both sides. There's a new book called A Set of Infamous Scribblers looking at uh, journalism in the, seven, in the 1790s. And Washington said the press were resorting to indecent terms that could scarcely be applied to a Nero, a notorious defaulter, or even a common pickpocket. Uh, but he also made the interesting quote uh, a little bit earlier the differences that are caused by the press 
he made the very good observation we need to remember. They're an evil which must be placed in opposition to the infinite benefits resulting from a free press. Washington basically is willing to give up some of his popularity in order to achieve what he feels is good for the country. As he expressed it, while I feel the most lively gratitude for the many instances of approbation, Washington loves that word approbation. He uses it over 600 times. Uh, This man loves and needs approval, uh, but it's not approval at any cost. I can do no otherwise than deserve it by obeying the dictates of my own own conscience. And he uses his skills to win support uh, for the treaty, uh, and he's successful. As James Madison uh, grumbled, uh, the name of the president is everywhere used with the most wondering success uh, in subduing popular objections. Because the view is Washington won't lead the country. If he supports it, we can trust him. It's using that kind of trust uh, that that, uh, is tremendously helpful. Most scholars today feel that he made the right decision. The interesting thing in studying Washington is, in retrospect, he almost always makes the right decision. And one of the reasons that it's hard for us to appreciate the depth of Washington's intellect is that what he said seems, in retrospect, to be obvious. But to identify, while deep in the trenches of conflict, what the future would consider obvious is a towering intellectual achievement. While problems naturally uh, continued, uh, Washington leaves the presidency uh, with a great many uh, successes uh, uh, to his his name. Uh, And when he leaves, and he wants, they want him to serve, of course, another term. Washington does not want to die in office. He wants to give the transfer of power. Uh, And this relinquishment of power, one of the great things of America... You know, the peaceful transfer of power from political party to political party. This is where it starts. Granted, it's to from one, within the same party. Four years later, it will be to a different uh, political party. But the relinquishment of power uh, is a tremendous final uh, message uh, from, from Washington. Uh, and Washington will become, again, a private citizen. He understands when... Adams is president and Jefferson's vice president. After the inaugural ceremony, the three men are there. Always the master of correct gesture. Jefferson wants Washington to precede him. No, you are now the office. He will walk uh, back uh, by, uh, by, by, him, by himself. And uh, he'll, he's a private citizen. And after it's over, he decided to walk to the Francis Hotel where John Adams was staying to pay his respects. Suddenly behind him, the streets were full of people. An immense company, one eyewitness recalled, going as one man in total silence as an escort all the way. At the door of the hotel, Washington turned and looked at this vast uh, group. He had tears uh, on his cheeks. No man ever saw him so moved, declared another eyewitness. For a long moment, he stood face to face with his people in solemn silence. Then he turned, and when the door closed behind him, a great smothered sigh went through the crowd, something between a sob and a groan. It was a tribute of grief 
from the voiceless common man who knew that he was saying goodbye to his greatest friend. Washington was the rarest of men, a multi-talented, realistic visionary who envisioned a grand future for the United States of America and worked to realize that vision with resourcefulness, ability, and steadfast determination. He did it not only for his own countrymen, for what, what he said time and time again, for millions yet unborn. The gift and opportunity he gave his beloved country was priceless. How we use it is up to us. Thank you very much.